Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, for the past uh, roughly 15 months, we've been walking through this book, this Gospel of Mark. And it's because of the testimony of these four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that you and I are sitting here today. We're in the final week, the final days before Jesus is crucified. And last week in, in chapter 12, we saw Jesus chastising the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. They saw their positions not as an opportunity to serve others, but as a way to gain prestige and, and fame and, and fortune as they abused the people, including widows, for their own gain. Jesus said, these men will be punished most severely. Well, Mark follows up pointing out something that happened in the temple. And it was a widow who came in to give an offering, contrast to other people that were giving offerings. And we're going to see today, we're going to talk about the widow's offering, and we're, we're going to see that, that Jesus contrasts those who, by the world's standards, are admired and respected with those who, though they don't have much, are close to the heart of God. And we're going to see what the Bible teaches about our responsibility, yours and my responsibility, to steward Whatever riches God entrusts to us. So let's look at Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, again, we need to remember where we are in Mark's gospel, in the Jesus story. As I said, this is the last week. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's heading toward the cross, and he has no choice but to have his mind constantly flooded with this concept of, of going step by step toward that cross. He, he understands the pain and the suffering that awaits him. And it's all in terms of the cross. And against this backdrop, this, this mindset that he has, he says, this woman put in everything that she had. And these words are so pointed. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you religious leaders, you claim to give a lot, but I'm going to give everything, just like this poor widow. I will lay my life down. I'm going to give everything I have for you. Now, I believe that this is a call for us to look at and evaluate ourselves, evaluate our lives. Where do we stand? Where do we stand in terms of obedience, in terms of following Jesus, in terms of our wealth, 
our energy, our power, our possessions, our positions, our, our titles. Where in our lives are we leveraging things that God will look at and go, he or she is giving everything. What should we do with things? But you know, things can get uncomfortable when someone, even Jesus, messes with our money, can't they? When someone goes after, I dare say, one of the idols in our life. Now, please understand, my purpose today is not to, to guilt you. The, the Bible says clearly in Romans 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This isn't a guilt thing. It's a teaching thing. This came up this week in the scriptures. We're marching through the book of Mark. And so this is intended to help you and me in the stewardship of the things that God has entrusted us with. For the church needs to know the heart of God when it comes to money and other material possessions. But we're nervous about talking uh, about money because we all at some point have probably encountered some religious institution that, that has done a terrible job of talking about money. Some guy's up there, or maybe it's a, a woman up there, and they're just pleading and begging and begging and making it sound like God's some pauper that doesn't have anything, and you've got to give to God because God's going to be in the poorhouse. And when we don't want to talk about money because of things like that, or, or maybe we know of some, some ministry where someone is absconded with some money or things like that, we, we, we say, we've seen it done poorly. Well, I submit to you, I don't know about you, but I've had some poor meals in my life, never for my wife's uh, cooking, and no one here. But did, did having a bad meal stop me from eating? And you guys can see the evidence that it has not, okay? <laughs> and what I'd like to propose to you is that whatever institution you've ever given to, and, and, and this is kind of a radical concept, but, but giving... It's not about the institution or even what the, what the institution does with the money, really. It's about what changes in us when money in our lives goes from being master to being servant. When it comes to the top of the money, people say, well, how come the church talks so much about money? They're critics of the church. All the church ever does is talk about money. Money, money, money. And may I point out that if the church spoke about money as much as Jesus spoke about money, we would spend about seven minutes per sermon on money and material things and stewardship. Or we'd just take an entire sermon every, every month and spend it if we spent as much time as Jesus did. Sixteen of Jesus' 38 parables in Scripture are about money. Ten percent of every verse in the Gospels is Jesus speaking about money and stewardship. So why was Jesus so obsessed with money? It wasn't because he was trying to make it rich. I mean, he was born in a, in a stable and, and laying in a, in, a, in a feeding trough, for gosh sake. You know, if he wanted money, you know, he would have just, uh, he could have just come up with it. He, he wasn't trying to make it rich. One time, as we know, he took five loaves of bread, two fish, and fed 5,000 people. I don't think he spoke about money because he needed it. But why is it so uncomfortable? It's so uncomfortable, I believe, because for so many of us, we don't even talk about money in our marriages. It's such a, a taboo subject. Or counselors can tell you that oftentimes money is one of the leading causes of, of fights in a marriage. That's why we avoid it. We don't talk about it because it leads to fights. Who wants to fight? I think the answer for, about this is that money is an insidious personal idol. 
I think the reason that's so pervasive in the Gospels is because you know what I know, even though we don't say it out loud. The idea that the call of the world to have things and to have possessions has caught the heart of so many of us. And our heart is an idol factory. And for whatever reason, money is the key idol of humankind. So why does Jesus talk about it so much? Because idols kill our walk with God. Why would he not talk about it so much? If it's the most important idol, and idol separates us from the life that Jesus has made for us, he would be remiss not to have spoken about it. And I dare say that in today's culture, with marketing and, and things, they, they, they try to put ads in everywhere they can, don't they? You can't read your email without pop-up ads. You can't try to look up something on the internet. All this, all this stuff coming at you, trying to sell you something, trying to, trying to help you to get you to invest in something, trying to get into your, into your wallet or your, or your pocketbook. But Jesus goes about these idols not because he's, he's into us being good moral people, but because he knows, he knows that these things will pull you away from the Father. We've probably all known people that have been pulled away from following God because of the pursuit of possessions and worldly things. So the loving Father says, I will not be silent. Billy Graham once said, the last thing to be converted on any man is his checkbook. And we can either go like, yeah, that's true, or we can go, but what if it wasn't? What if it wasn't? And what if the reason for that is because we need to do a better job of, a, of addressing this idol rather than saying, well, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to tick somebody off. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. In case you haven't noticed, Jesus didn't seem to worry about people feeling uncomfortable. We've seen that as we've, as we've been studying go the Gospel of Mark. He knew that money, that things, that materialism needed to be addressed, and he did. So I want to begin this morning by looking at four things the Bible tells us about money. And if you haven't done so by this time, please pull out your, your life notes. It's that half sheet of paper. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will, will bring it to you. And for those of you that, that, that maybe not have been here before, all the, all the messages here, I put them on, on podcast. And so they're available online. You can pick them up. You can list, listen if you haven't. You say, well, I wish I'd been here for that Mark series. Um, you know, I checked last night. And I, I'm humbled every time I do this, but we're coming up. It looks like we're going to go over 15,000 downloads and plays on the podcast of, of the messages from Sky Valley this year. Now, that's way, way more people than have been sitting in this room over this past year. And I praise God for that. And, and it's not just in the U.S. and not just in Canada, but it's places like China. It's places like uh, Latvia. This past week, someone's listened to one of my messages in Latvia. I'm like... Okay, I don't know how they found out about it, but it's just wonderful how the word is getting out. And again, I'm humbled by that. I never dreamed when we started the podcast that it would have that kind of, that kind of reach. So if you want that, you can, you can get it. If you don't know how to get it, let us know. But I hope you hear the heart behind all of this. The hope here is that not everyone, it's not so that I'm trying to motivate you to give more to the chapel uh, so that we can have, have, have our budget met. Although we do depend upon your generosity as God leads you to do it. This sermon is not about what God wants from you. It's, what, it's about what God wants for you. Because I've learned in my own life that, that, that money, it's, it's, about, it's about what God wants to do in my heart more than what he wants to do in my bank account. Generosity and a generous heart is something that God wants for you and for me. And those of you that know me well know that I, I oftentimes say, you know, I serve a generous God. And I want to reflect 
my father. And so I try to lead, lead a, I try to put myself in a position where I can be generous. Now, a lot of people, they live their life uh, in, a, in a way that may not be as responsible as they should, and it's hard for them to be generous. But I try to lead my life in a generous way to reflect God and what he's done for me. So what are four things the Bible tells us about money? Well, first of all, and everything starts with this, everything belongs to God. Say it with me. Everything belongs to God. He owns it. Everyone who's ever been paid a dime to do anything has borrowed capital from the king first. Even the will to pursue a job that makes money, that gives you promotion, all of this is borrowed from God. It's borrowed will. It's, it's borrowed breath. If you don't think you get your breath from God, try holding your breath. And let me know at the end of the message how you're making out, okay? Even our very breath comes from God. He's the giver. He's the sustainer of life, the scripture tells us. Which means that you didn't put some, some money that, that you created yourself into some cosmic vending machine so that you could have breath today. God gave it to you. He opened your eyes this morning. He enabled you to get out of bed. Some of us more slowly than others. But God gives us these things. He provides for us. We're borrowing everything. And this is why the book of Psalms says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. Now, some would say, well, man, what, what's God lacking if he needs my money? No, no, no. there's nothing that God lacks. It's not that, it's not that he lacks anything. Psalm 23 says, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. You know why? Because he lacks nothing. And he provides for me. When the Lord is my provider, I'll always be provided for because the provider needs no provision. God doesn't need anything. He, he owns everything. So don't think that he needs your wealth like, like someone you see on the street corner down here begging for something. Next to this first one there, I want you to write the word trust. Write the word trust. We have four words we're going to associate with each one of these four, these four things. Everything belongs to God, but money is like a trust. A trust is a legal relationship in which the holder of a right gives it to another person or another entity who must keep it and use it solely for the owner's benefit. God owns everything, and he entrusts it to us to use what he gives us to advance his kingdom. Money is a trust. Number two, money is an instrument of worship. And next to that, you could write money as a tool. Money is a trust. Money is a tool. So what does this mean? It means that money is amoral. It's not immoral. It's not moral. It's amoral. It means that money is neither here nor there. Money is not a, a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just a thing. It's a tool. It's something that we use. That, and in what we do with it dictates whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for us. Years ago, a friend of mine wanted my opinion on, on a policy the Navy Chapel Corps was looking at doing because keeping track of the offerings in the Navy chapels and all was a lot of work just as, you know, keeping track track the finances here in our chapel is a lot of work. And there's also the temptation, and some people, yes, would do stupid things, and they'd end up in Leavenworth because um, they dipped their hand in the, in the pot, so to say. And so the chief of chaplain's office was considering doing away with the religious offering fund because the ministry in the Navy is paid for by the government. The religious offering fund, 20% can be used for local fellowship, and the other 80% must be given away to other charities. That's the way the Navy's funds work. The Army and Air Force do it a little bit differently. And so this, this friend of mine that was working the chief of chaplain's office at the time, I, I later worked for the chief of chaplains, he asked me, you know, well, what do you think about that? 
And I said, absolutely no. Giving, it's an instrument of worship. If you take that away from people, you're taking away a vehicle for people to worship God. And I'm happy to say they still have the religious offering fund, despite the work that it, keep, it takes to, to keep it up and everything. Now, some people would quote 1 Timothy and say, well, it says that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we can't go, oh, well, the, the church, we can't have money because it's, it's not good. It's, it's, it's evil. Or you have some people, you have two different extremes. You have the prosperity gospel, and then you have the poverty gospel, which says God wants you to be rich, and God wants you to have everything. Or, or the poverty gospel says God wants you to be poor and, and have nothing. They're both taking that verse out of context. Scripture says that God is so much more concerned with the posture of your heart than he is with the position of your bank account. Whether you have little or if you have much, the question is, is what you have surrendered to him? The rich people in our story today in, in Mark, their heart wasn't surrendered to him. So when they gave, they gave, they gave to, in order to be showy so the other people would see them. They gave out a braggadocia, and, and God says, I don't count that. The widow who had nothing, just those two little slim copper coins, her heart was for God. And it says that she gave all that she had, and Jesus said, I like that. Kudos to my daughter. Money is a tool. It's value neutral, as it were. Money is an excellent servant, but it's a terrible master. We will either worship wealth or we will worship with our wealth. It's an excellent servant for us to, to accomplish God's will, God's purposes, but it's a horrible master for us if that's all we're concentrating on, all we're, all we're focused on, and all we're trying to, to get to where it's keeping us up at night or, or causing us worry, causing us to lose sleep. It's an excellent servant, but a horrible master. You'll either worship God with your money or you'll worship the money itself. It's a tool, but its value is in how we use it. By and in of itself, Use it to worship. Use it as an instrument of worship, whether you worship the creator or created things. Now, worship means to, uh, to uh, uh, ascribe, to, to give worth to something, to, to, to think it's a value of worth. And when we use it to advance God's kingdom, we are worshiping him. We're giving him worth. We're giving him value because he, he entrusts us with it, and he tells us to advance the kingdom. Now, you may be saying, well, so, so everything I get, I need to give to God? No, that's the crazy part about it. God would have every right because it's all his to say, okay, give 100% of it to me. But that's not what he does. And he, he delights in his people. He, he wants us to have margin in our lives. He says, I want you to have some margin so that you can go to, you can go to Chick-fil-A, if you will. That's where Jesus and the disciples ate, right? They, not on the Sabbath, though. It's an instrument of worship one way or the other. This leads to number three. Giving is worship and obedience. So giving is a way that we worship. It's also part of obedience. Money is a trust. It's a tool. Here, right test. Money is a test. It's a way that God can actually test us. And some of you say, well, God doesn't test people. You ever heard the story of Abraham and Isaac? Where God said, I want you to go to Mount Moriah, and I want you to take your only son, you know, that boy that I gave you in your old age, and said that through, through your offspring... All the world, all the nations going to be going to be blessed. I want you to take him up and sacrifice him up on the mountain. I call that a test. Now, God doesn't make him go through it, 
But he wanted to know if Abraham was obedient. He was testing Abraham's obedience. And it's an incredible story. And as you know, God in the clutch provides the, provides the ram. That's what Abraham was saying all along. He's saying, you know, I know God's going to provide. He told his son that. He told the servants that. And God actually uses that story as a way of showing how intense his sacrifice of his son would be thousands of years later. Here's what the book of Luke says about this, chapter 16. Jesus says, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. If you're dishonest in little things, you'll also be dishonest with greater responsibilities. So if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with the riches of heaven? So the concept God is saying, he's saying, if I, if I can't trust you with material things like gold and currency and diamonds and wealth, then how can you be trusted with the real riches, the riches of heaven? So even our currency is a shadow of the powerful riches that are to come. And if we're not faithful with other people's things, that's the idea of trust. Why would, should you be trusted with other things? It's a way that God tests us to see where our heart is. Number four, money is our primary value indicator. I think the Bible supports this because of how much it talks about money. Because God knows that the heart's primary way of expressing itself is it's our bank accounts. It's our, it's our primary value indicator. That's why, why Jesus said, he said it in Matthew and he said it in Luke. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You put your treasure there, your heart's going to follow after it. If someone looked at your bank account and where you spent your money and, and you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't interrupt them, you couldn't say, well, let me explain. What if we were open up the old bank statement and we were to say, okay, if, if, if this is going to show where your, where your heart is, would, would it show that you're a Jesus follower? Would your credit card statement show that you're a follower of Christ? How many of us go, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 I need to explain this one or that one. And I think it's an ironic thing about generosity. I think the, the reason a lot of us like to push back on it is because we make an excuse. We'll say like, well, if I had more, then I'd be able to give generously. But right now, I just, I just don't have that. Let me tell you something that, I, that I've noticed. People who don't have much that give manage their money better than people that don't. When I was counseling people in the military, the people that had the financial problems weren't people who were, who were in church and who were, and who were, who were, who were fi- uh, financially given to the, to the church or the chapel or, or to God. It was people that were just spending everything, not as if it was God's, but as if it was their own. Generosity is not really a, a financial issue. It's a heart issue. It's, it's, it's not a financial issue. It's core. It's, it's a heart issue. And God knows that. And maybe you've got some debt in your life, but understand that God has something to say about that too. He says in Proverbs that the borrower is slave to the lender. The borrower is slave to the lender. And I tell you, it's poor practice, loan money, especially those that you have to have Thanksgiving dinner with or Christmas dinner with. Because it's a different relationship when you're sitting around a table and someone owes you a couple thousand dollars, isn't it? Been there. Done that. Give it as a gift. Pray about it and give it as a gift. The borrower is slave to the lender. He wants us to be free. Christ came to give us freedom, to bring us freedom. He set us free from, uh, from sin and death and the power of Satan. He didn't set us free that so we could be, be captive to, uh, to capital, whatever that thing is. I mean, they're cute commercials, okay? I get it. It's, it's cool marketing, but what's in your wallet? money. I got a credit card I use, and then I pay it off at the end of every month. That's responsible, I believe. So for this one, write tell. The word next to this one is the word tell. Money is a telling. You may be sitting there, well, well, I'm a Baptist. What's a tell? 
Well, if you don't play poker, uh, you need to understand that in poker, uh, I know, I pick on Baptists a lot. I'm, I'm a recovering one, okay? <laughs> and, and don't get upset. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be funny. You know, sometimes it works. Um, we had a lady once. We had a lady here once. I used the recovering Baptist line, and she stopped coming to chapel. I, I don't feel guilty about that. I'm sorry. But a, a, a tell in poker is a, is a change in your behavior or your demeanor that kind of telegraphs to the people you're playing with what's in your hand. It's kind of like kids' games. You know, when, you, when you're playing with kids, they have a hard time not giving tells, you know, so you know what their hand, like, what is it, old maid? Old maid, yeah. The, the, the card game my wife used to cheat against our kids with. But anyway, um, <laughs> she's repented of that. The kids have forgiven her. But a tell telegraphs what, you're, what you've got in your hand by letting, letting people know. You know, people get a good hand and, you know, they, they touch their glasses, they, they rub their mustache or their, their ear or something. Well, in the same way, money is a tell. It's a primary value indicator. It tells what, what, where your heart is. It'll tell where your heart is. Now, I want to look quickly here at some bad attitudes we might have towards giving, especially when it comes to the church and things of God. The first bad attitude about giving is when we approach giving as transactional. I give to God, so he will give to me. And some people actually preach this. It's not biblical, okay? Just hear me out before I get to it, because we are going to cover what it does say in the Scripture. But some people think, well, I'm going to give to God because then he has to give to me. Now, there is a promise in Scripture about us giving to God and him blessing us beyond what we can even understand, full up, overflowing, all that kind of stuff. I've read it, okay, so don't, you know, write me an email or something. But that's not supposed to be our motivation. We don't give in order to get. And I wouldn't say, well, here's my investment strategy. I'm going to give everything I have to the church or to the chapel so that next month and God's just going to double. It's just going to bingo, show up in my, in my bank account. That'd be irresponsible. Don't do that, because then you're poor. You have no money to live on. Because when he's talking about blessing here, God isn't always talking, as I said before, about financial return. There are verses in Scripture talking, though, about how God blesses us when we're diligent, when we're diligent in our giving, when we're diligent in our stewardship. That's what he wants. But that's not to be our primary motivating reason for giving. There's another attitude that, that says, well, giving is my member dues. This attitude is, well, I go to church and I got to pay, I gotta pay um, dues at other clubs, so, so I'm going to pay my club dues. That's, that's what I do. I got to write off my check to the church. And once we get to thinking of the church as a club, then we're not really understanding what the church is. We start thinking of some kind of holy huddle and thinking of ourselves as more exclusive and better than, than other people, more moral than them. And, and that's not what Scripture calls us, calls us to. It's not club dues. Some people think giving is for the church or chapel. I give for the church. Well, we've got to remember that giving and generosity is a plumb line of our heart. And, the, and, and this was done even before the church was ever established. It's not that, well, the church needs it, so I better give, or else I'm going to have to drive 20, 20 minutes out away from here to, to, to attend a worship service on Sunday morning. You know, I, I can't have that. I, I've got to keep the chapel in, in business. Well, does your tithing and offerings keep us in business here? Yes, yes, it does. But don't get it twisted around and make that your motivation for giving. God wants us to give out of a joyous heart, out of a, out of a grateful heart, not because we're just going to try to make sure that, that the doors stay open and we have someone to preach to us and someone to do beautiful music and fire pit concerts and block parties yeah. and other stuff like that. There is scriptural support, though, and I'm not going to go into it, but there is scriptural support for giving where you're fed. 
If you're just visiting here, we don't expect you to give here. But if you're here for two, three, four, five weeks, five months, then you should be giving where you're, where you're being fed. That's scriptural. Number four, and this might be ouch for some, giving as a right to influence. You ever seen that one before? You ever seen someone that walks into the church like they own the place? And you think, well, if I give to the church, that means technically the pastors work for me. So you need to do what I say. I've had people tell me that. I've had people, sell, I've had people dangle things in front of me. This is a long, long time ago. Don't try to figure out who it was. But I once had a lady that I was talking to her, and I mentioned the fact that Lou and I were planning on going to Hawaii for our 40th wedding anniversary, which was a few years down the road. And she and her husband had just gotten back from Hawaii. And she said to me, she said, when I said, you know, about us going to Hawaii, she said, well, maybe my husband and I have to do something about that. I never once talked to her about it again because I knew this individual. I knew that there were strings attached. And if I took a trip to Hawaii on her dime or her husband's dime, that she would expect things from me. And her vision for the chapel and for the ministry here to reach the future generations wasn't the ministry that God gave me. She's no longer here, so don't look around trying to figure out who it is. <laughs> the point is, the staff, we are here to serve you, but we're also here to equip you. And even if you may be 20 years, 30 years older than me or Bruce, we're also here to help you grow in your spiritual maturity. And if you think you don't need to grow in your spiritual maturity, you need a heart check, I dare say. I say that with all, with all kindness and, and, and conviction. We need to be responsible with the way that we manage the tithes and offerings that are given to the, to the chapel or the church. We, we understand that. But I think one of the worst things that has happened in Western Christianity is the baptism of democracy. Now, don't think I'm poo-pooing democracy. I think it's the best system to live under. I wore the cloth of this nation for over 30 years protecting and defending democracy. But when we bring it into the church to where we think that every single person that, that walks in here and gives whatever, whether it be $2 or, or $2,000, thinks that they get a vote on whether we paint the hall or, or whether we put up wreaths on either side or something. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. That's, that's not what it is all about. Nowhere in Scripture do you find the early church working like that. But we've taken it and we've brought our Western democratic principles into the church. I remember years ago, I was, I was filling in for a pastor in uh, Cherry Point, North Carolina, when I was stationed at the Marine Base there. I was filling in at a local church. And the chairman of the deacons, before I got up to preach, was giving the announcements. And they were voting on deacons that, that night. And, and he's up, the chairman is up there said, oh, well, you need to come out tonight and, and exercise your right to vote. I struggled with the Holy Spirit right there on the spot because I wanted to change my entire message with the and make it be the tagline, the church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. And you need to trust the Holy Spirit. You need to trust God. Now, yes, there's leaders that fail. Believe me, I know that. And I have to keep my heart pure before God as I, as I lead this congregation. I lead the, the ministry here at Sky Valley. But it's not a democracy. We take input. We listen to people. But don't be upset if we don't do what you say we do, because we've got 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 200 people, other people that may not be saying. And we also don't go for, for universal consensus. You know, we need 51% of the vote, and then we're going we're gonna to do something. It's not majority opinion. Number five, giving as a strategy to feel better about wealth guilt. And this is the attitude, um, well, let me give something so that when people look at me and they know that I have wealth, then I don't have to feel guilty about, about having, having things. This attitude worries more about what people perceive about them than how God sees them. 
And again, that's not a primary reason for giving. Number six, the last one here, giving as pacification. Now, this is giving to pacify God to avoid his wrath or his judgment and his justice. And this, atti- this attitude can be seen in people who think I can, I can live however I want because I give. I, it's, like, it's like we can buy God off. You know, like, he's, like he's some guy shaking down a, a, a store owner on a street in Brooklyn. It, it's, like, it's like drinking a Diet Coke and eating butter popcorn with it. Thinking, okay, one cancels the other out. I'm not going to listen to the callings and commands of Scripture because, after all, look how much I give. God's going to see how much I give, and I'm going to be good with God because I write big checks. Well, as we wrap up, I want us to look at five questions that we tend to ask about generosity. And these questions are on a spectrum. Okay? They're on a spectrum. These reflect the different levels of understanding as we grow more in maturity in Christ. And the first level is to say this. What should I do with my stuff? And probably a lot of us, if we don't give anything, this is how we view the offering in a, in a worship service. When it comes by, we're asking, well, well, what should I do with my stuff? How much should I give? Well, when it's, when it's my heart combined with my prerogative and it's my money in the first place, well, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a motivation for giving. When it's all my, 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 my. And I know certain people... Certain little people that, you know, you ever have a two-year-old and all you hear is my, 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 my? Well, there's some taller people that view things that way when it comes to money and giving. The next level, it's a stronger level, but it's not getting where we want to be. It's what should I do with God's stuff? So there's a movement here that says, well, it's not my stuff, it's God's stuff, so it's my heart, but it's technically God's money, but he gave it to me, and I do with it whatever, whatever I want to, whatever pleases me. And these people tend to give sporadically, just once in a while, because, okay, I, here, I'll throw, I'll throw some change to God. So what should I do with my stuff? What should I do with God's stuff? Number three, what does God want me to do with my stuff? So the possessions are still viewed as mine, but what does God want me to do with my stuff? I'm taking him in consideration. At least I'm asking him. But it's, but it's kind of like a, a, a consultant. And as I told you last week, God doesn't do consulting. He does God. With a consultant, you say, okay, thanks for the advice, but I'm going to invest over here. I'm going to do this. To a king, you said, yes, sir, it's yours. I'll do what you told me to do with it. Number four, what does God want me to give from what he has given me? Now, this is getting really close to what I think the biblical heart behind how we should be asking, giving, and generosity in our life. What does God want me to give from what he has given me? It's recognizing it comes from God. What is, it's asking what, he's, what does he want me to do with it. But, but number five, this is where I think the mature Christian is. What would God have me keep from what he's blessed me with and entrusted me to steward? This one says, what would God have me keep? And the insinuation here is, it's all his. What's he going to allow me to keep? It may be 90%. It may be 80%. People that I've known that have grown spiritually and, and grown in, in, in generosity and giving don't just limit it. It's not like we're paying God off. You know, I've known people that, you know, you can tell how much they made in their paycheck that week because it's like, you know, $244.33. Exactly 10%. They write checks the same way that they pay the bank, you know, for their car or whatever, whatever else uh, other bills they owe. So the insinuation is that it's all his here. Then after I've obeyed and given back to God, what was, I've given to him what was his in the first place. 
now how do I do with the other 90 some percent? Let me tell you something. I've seen people that have this attitude of paying God off. I give 10 percent, I tithe, and then they just do whatever the heck they want with the other 90 percent. But I believe that God is just as concerned with what you do with the 90 percent as he was the 10 percent. Again, it's a heart thing. He wants your heart. We take his life, his breath, his intelligence, his will, his power, his way of doing things, his engineering skills, and everything that he gives us to earn this money. He lends it to us. And, and, so, and so we need to remember, again, everything belongs to him. It belongs to dad, to father. And it's like, may I borrow your thing? May I use it for this reason? And it changes the heart of a child to understand that it belongs to his or her father. And as our hearts begin to shift and, and shift in this mentality and this mindset, my hope is that we would all here understand, as I said before, I don't have a question this week. I have a statement that I want us to get into us. Go ahead, Chris, put it up there. Giving is not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. This insatiable, insatiable hole, this chasm of the idol of money will never be, will never be filled. And let me give you an, an example here as we close. There was a survey that was done years ago, and they polled 1,500 American families. And these families made anywhere from $30,000 to $200,000 a year. And they asked every one of these families the same question. They said, how much money would you need to be making right now to experience financial freedom? And you know what they found? The person making $30,000 and the person that made, making $200,000 a year, almost everyone said the exact same number. They said $1,000 more a month would put me in a good position. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the generosity and giving and finances really at the end of the day, it really doesn't come down to dollar amounts. It comes down to the heart, the condition of the heart. And, and I think Paul talked about this in the New Testament. He says there's an, there's an elusiveness. There's a secret called contentment. And those who find it experience the joy of freedom in Christ. Paul said, I've, I've learned to be content when I had much and when I had little. It's being content. Part of the way that God has given us to slay idols in our life is, is through giving to our local church or chapel. And if you think about it in, in, in those terms, what if the church existed as your once weekly opportunity to fight off your idols? Think of a church service, what it's made up of. We worship corporately. Why? Because some of us worship ourselves. We may not want to admit it, but some of it's all about me. But when we come in here, it can't be all about you. It's all about him. We worship for an audience of one. And as we come together and we sing songs to God, not songs about me, we sing songs to God, we worship him. We have a Sabbath day. Why? Because we come and we make time in our busy schedules because many of us worship busyness and, and success as we're striving to reach the American dream, whatever that is, or whatever it looks like. And we also have an offering. Why? Because some of us need to release. Some of us worship money and we need to release it. We need to give as, as a tangible way of sacrificing that idol to who God really is. And when it gets down to it, it looks like like, like church is the Father climbing into our world and saying, if you worship anything but me, your life will lose its meaning, it'll lose its, des lose its destination, its purpose, its value. So don't be tricked by the idol of money. It's the call of the Father saying, I want your heart to be free. And one of the ways that we free our hearts is before our desires want to get there, we, through an act of the will, do 
that which worships and honors him. And we're generous. And I believe God wants us to experience this freedom that comes through using those things that he gives to us, that he entrusts us with, to reflect his glory and his priorities. What a story. A couple of weeks ago, I told folks that were here that when I'm preaching, I'm preaching, first of all, to myself. I have to take the, the message and run it through my own life. And this is an area that this has, has had to been done over the past two or three years in particular. Most of you know that Lou and I will be leaving here in a few months and we've been appointed as missionaries with Novo and have to raise all of our own support, salary, expenses, and stuff like that. And I'll be honest with you, three years ago when Novo first approached me, I'm like, wow, I don't know if I can do that. But that first, that first premise that I gave you is what enabled me to step forward. It's all his. It's not about me or, or, you know, even though I'm going to be asking many of you to be ministry partners, it's not about you, it's about him. It's about him speaking to people's hearts. And already we've been blown away by the, some generosity that people have, 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 have given to the cause. And I'm not saying this right now to get you to give, okay? I'm going to be visiting, talking to people individually about that. I just want to tell you, this is something that I have to live. Lou has to live as we trust him for his provision. And it's an exciting ride. It's an adventure. Let us pray. Jesus, your word tells us that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And that might not seem like much to us, Lord, but we know a thousand was a big number to people back then. Today we could say you you own the cattle on a bazillion hills. And you choose to entrust us with some of that wealth that you have. It's all yours. Lord, I pray that this message, in, in whatever way it needs to, would sink into the heart of each and every person here this morning. And that they would listen to your prompting as to what to do with it. If there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, we know that the first thing you want, the chief thing you want is their heart. That just giving, paying God off through their checkbook or their pocketbook isn't going to deal with the heart problem. We pray that person wouldn't leave this place this morning without seeking out one of us, Bruce or myself, and addressing this heart need to follow Jesus, to cross that line of belief, to be a Jesus follower. As we go through this week, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to speak to each one of us about our need. Prepare our hearts for next week for the great celebration of your coming into the world so that you could give your life for ours, so that you could redeem us for the Father. Walk with us. Help us in a winsome way to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and we will give you all the honor and all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.